Welcome back to e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron from Isba. Aaron, what's going on? Doing great, man. How are you doing? Excited for this. I know we've got a big episode here. We've done a deep dive. You've brought so much data to the table about jewelry sourcing, about this really unique, high growth e-commerce jewelry brand. I don't know if we should say the name right now or leave it as a cliffhanger because I know first we're going to touch on current news. What has been top of mind for you this past week? Yeah, I've been paying a lot of attention to just uh, the job market in supply chain, supply chain tech. So there's a few interesting tidbits I saw. So the first one was the just analysis about the amount of VC funding that's gone into supply chain tech. I think about a year ago or two years ago, it was like $5 billion. And this past year, it was only $780 million. Um, and so the funding machine has kind of dried up. Um, with that, you're seeing layoffs at uh, you know Flex and Convoy obviously shut down. Um, a lot of the supply chain tech companies that I'm close with are also feeling the pinch. Um, Flexport just announced another layoff. I think it's like their third layoff in six or seven months. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting things that are kind of coming to bear on this. What I'm seeing, it's not just the supply chain tech folks. Uh, big manufacturers like Plexus, Flextronic, uh, Celestica, they are actually also laying off people. Um, and so that's been an interesting kind of dynamic we're seeing play out. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, when it comes to these tech-oriented supply chain layoffs like Flexport, I mean, do you think it's that they mispaired technology and supply chain functions? Because like, okay, even if you layer on nice software on top of freight, at the end of the day, there still has to be people that move that freight, right? I mean, the container's not going to move itself. There's still a cargo ship involved. And though it's a nice to have, I just am curious, you know, even with Convoy as an example too, with, you know, freight forwarding on the LTL side and, and the, you know, trucking they were targeting, like, do you think that thesis was wrong or just they mismanaged their capital or, or what do you think happened there? Yeah, I, I actually did a whole deep dive on Convoy and their collapse uh, late last year. Um, you know, I, I think without going into all of that tangent, I think that there are two things happened at the same time for a lot of these supply chain, supply chain tech companies. The first one is they went from, uh, you know, very high freight rates uh, to back to normal pretty quickly, like in a, in a matter of less than a year. So you, you saw this collapse and the fundamental value of the unit they were moving uh, was cut by 80%. The other thing that happened um, at the same time is that it became unsexy to be a money losing company and you had to be profitable from the get go. And so you have something where your base amount of revenue that you, you're able to bring in is shrinking. And then you've got a, a capital structure and a, a financing structure that's upside down. And so you're forced to compete on the same playing field that incumbents have played with. And so I, I think that those are the two things that have really pushed people to uh, reevaluate and try to hunker down and just get through it. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, w what I've seen this past week that I thought was so interesting is, you know, I think a lot of e-commerce brands in today's world use TikTok as a viral channel, right? I mean, the growth of TikTok for e-commerce brands, I think, has pretty, been pretty tremendous the past few years. And now with TikTok shops, I see a lot of brands trying to drive, you know, growth and revenue through TikTok shops. But I just saw earlier this week that Universal Music Group is pulling its music license from TikTok. So any artist that is associated with, you know, Universal is no longer going to be able to have their music on TikTok. And I'm just curious, is that going to have a downstream effect on the amount of people that are, you know, creating viral videos on TikTok? Because they own a huge catalog of music. And from, you know, my understanding of, of TikTok, you know, a lot of these 
viral trends revolve around music. Yeah, I'm trying to think like which artists are not tied to Universal. It, you know, like Taylor Swift's got her own I thing mean, going on, but this is wild. Yeah, I mean, all the major artists are tied to Universal for the most part. And like, you know, when any brand's trying to follow a viral trend, for the most part, it seems like they are, you know, utilizing uh, a licensed piece of music from one of these artists. So I'm just curious what kind of downstream effects this will have. I mean, I do think TikTok shops is still like a huge and fast growing channel for these brands. But at the same time, too, like some people have compared it to like Shein or Timu and you know, does it kind of devalue your brand in some sense? If you're like, you know, driving like these viral video, uh, video, you know, conversions through TikTok shops. I, I don't know. Uh, you remember kids bops? Like when we were growing up, like yeah. those CDs where yeah. people went over. I think we're going to see the kid bops for, for TikTok. We're going to see people who, you know, are not these artists kind of parody uh, and have something that's close enough. People will use it. They're going to get a ton of money because they're basically recording something. It'll be short enough that it'll be within the fair rights uh, usage. And so it won't be plagiarism. And I think uh, basically what's going to happen is there'll be a whole cottage industry of people who, you know, kind of sound like pick an artist uh, that, that get big on TikTok and these artists don't get the benefit of it. And they might be generated by AI, right? Who knows? <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that is kind of what's been top of mind for me this past week. And it sounds like, you know, for you in terms of these you know, supply chain technology companies and how that industry has changed so quickly, you know, given the change, I think, overall and in the interest rate environment and just VCs wanting to have and back profitable startups, if you will. So that's changed quickly. I think let's, you know, talk about really the main subject of this episode, which is jewelry sourcing. We've got a super deep dive on one of the top jewelry brands in the e-commerce world. Uh, announce who are we going to be talking about this episode? So we're going to be digging into Majuri, and I'm going to just give some context. We don't have any inside information. So everything we've talked about is available publicly. Uh, we have done sleuthing skills, uh, so we don't have relationships with you guys. This is also not investment advice. We could be completely wrong on this. But, uh, you know, what we were talking, and, and there's just so many cool stories that are out there. And a lot of times you hear about them when they're, you know, after it's been acquired or efforts shut down, you kind of, these, these things come out. What we wanted to do was to really dive into cool companies kind of while they're in the middle of their growth story, um, look at their history, dissect their supply chain, their operations, maybe suggest some things that we might do differently, but really what can we learn from it, right? If in this case, you know, if we wanted to start our own jewelry brand, what would we do? How would we do it differently? It's, it's kind of how we wanted to, to frame up today's episode. Totally. And I think with this episode, we're taking kind of both sides of the story in terms of understanding Majority's supply chain, but also understanding their growth. You know, how did they grow? How did they get started? What's been their best channels? And we also reveal, you know, one of the factories that we discovered through an HTS code, you know, lookup that anyone can do. It's not like we, you know, had any inside information like Aaron is, is saying, um, but, you know, it's, it's public information based on their import records. So super interesting story here. I want to start with a big question. Do you think Majori is going to sell for a billion plus dollars based on what we know right now. I think that's probably the asking price. Uh, if, if they're ready to sell, and that's, if they wanted to sell now, that's probably where they'd be at. But I, I think we'll, I don't know, we'll, we'll kind of get to that number. How did Majori get started? You know, what is the kind of start of the brand look like? And then towards the end of the episode two, we're going to dive in to if you want to start a jewelry brand, Here's how you'd go about it. Here's how we'd find a factory. 
here's how we'd bet that factory. Here's how we grow that brand. So we're going to tell the brand story, what levers they pulled to grow, some interesting data points that we uncovered. And then we're going to dive into, okay, now knowing this and seeing the potential of a massive billion plus dollar jewelry brand, how would you go about starting that and scaling that today? Yeah. So our story today, like all great Disney startups, starts in the great north. So Majuri is actually a Canadian company. Um, they're based in Toronto. And uh, it was founded by uh, Nora Sakija. And uh, Nora's very interesting. She, she immigrated from Jordan uh, to Canada. And she's actually third generation in fine jewelry. And she initially came to Canada, was studying industrial engineering and supply chain. And this is kind of like 2013 timeframe. She was working days as a process engineer and working nights and weekends on the business. And, you know, I, from what I could tell, it seemed like it was, uh, you know, part, this is what she knew. It was maybe a side hustle. And she really kind of struck on a few things from a branding point of view. The first one was that she really wanted to make sure that sustainability was at the core of her brand and what they were, what they were standing for. And so with her supply chain background, she actually then went very deep and looked at all the different certifications all the different types of things that uh, could actually make something sustainable. Um, but the really, the, the kind of key insight for her was that she recognized that most jewelry, uh, most of the marketing is actually marketed to men to give to a woman. And, and her perspective was like, we should flip this on its head. And how do we make uh, jewelry that is affordable and approachable and that women feel good about buying for themselves, kind of a, a women's empowerment sort of thing. And so uh, in 2013, 2014, uh, she and her husband decided to put $5,000 of their savings into that. They started reselling other designs from other people. And, you know, I, I imagine it was probably more of a typical marketplace. Uh, you know, here's Nathan Resnick's earrings, design sort of thing. And like, that's what they would do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's such a unique start because, you know, Nora has a background and a family history in jewelry. But at the same time, you know, she saw a gap in the market where most brands were marketing towards men to buy for their girlfriends or wives or, you know, whoever it may be. And so I think it's a, it's a unique angle that they saw. And, and look, it started 2013, 2014. You know, this has been a 10 plus year journey for, you know, their team. And I think a lot of people, honestly, when you look into e-commerce stories, uh, especially when they get to scale, a lot of people start by like either reselling another product or private labeling something, you know, pretty simple, just to kind of like almost get their feet wet and understand like, okay, you know, is this, does this make sense? Is this something I want to do? And then they realize like, okay, well, if I really want to build a brand here, I need my own products. I need my own, you know, designs um, because it takes a lot of capital. You know, if you're going out right off the bat to produce your own custom products or, or your own product, especially at that time, you know, 10 years ago, it was even harder to access suppliers and work with factories overseas. Yeah. Well, you just think about 2013. Shopify is kind of new, right? Like uh, this yeah. is the heyday of selling on Facebook was new. Uh, so it feels like a, a lifetime ago. But what I think that, that uh, Nora and her husband did well and is really kind of a playbook for, for people today is they started out by bootstrapping their idea. You know, they went, they went two years where they're like, you know, I don't know if they were grinding for 20 hours a day or it was like, you know, two hours a month, but they were playing with it. They were prototyping. They were looking at this. And it's something that, you know, I think had they launched this business four years later, it probably would have been something where, you know, they raised $2 million as a pre-seed fund and they went out and they charged off it. And they didn't really have that time to, 
to test and learn and kind of figure out what they wanted to be when they grew up. They would have had all this pressure just to grow without knowing if it was in the right direction or not. And probably during that bootstrap period, you know, they could grow a community, they could be more sustainable with some of their marketing efforts and really get more kind of deep rooted in their initial launch. Um, but, you know, I, I think it depends on the timing, right? Like you're saying, I mean, most or a lot of brands, you know, we see raising, you know, pre-seed rounds that just start to launch, right? And it's pretty crazy. But at the same time, you know, if you set out to hit scale, the biggest challenge that, you know, you face and that we're going to dive into oftentimes is, you know, working capital to, to manage your cash flow. Yeah. And so it's really interesting because there's there's kind of two founding dates of Majori. There's 2013 when uh, Nora was starting to work on this and to think about it. Uh, but 2015 is when the company was, I guess, founded or reincorporated. And that's when she went full time with it. And I think this is a common sort of playbook that we're going to see more and more often where people are going to take a few a few years to incubate an idea and really test out and see if they want to do it. But in, in 2015, they hired a creative director. And they decided to bring all of their design in-house. They said, that's going to be our strategic differentiator. We're no longer going to sell someone else's designs. We want to be our own designer. And uh, in 2017, they raised a $5 million Series A, and they were doing about a million dollars in revenue. And so th there's a few things that are interesting here is, is one, uh, how many people after working for two years would be willing to you know, sell at least 30% to a, an investor and give up a sizable amount for co-founders? Because uh, there's there's kind of some sometimes this idea of like, hey, I've put in all the sweat equity, like you should have two percent because of the time that I put back here. And I think just the forward thinking of this and saying, yeah, you know, we we could have had a two hundred thousand dollar business side business, it would have been just fine. But we want to do something bigger. We're willing to to reset the cap table because we think that you know our smaller stake of you know maybe fifty percent uh, is going to be worth a lot more. If that fifty percent is worth a hundred million dollars than if it's worth 200K. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, but I also want to dive into the timing of when they raised that $5 million Series A, right? Because 2017, were those the same years as, you know, Allbirds and Away and some of these, you know, darling D2C brands yeah. when they were raising like massive amounts of capital? Um, and I think too, you know, you had some relatively, you know, big exits in the D2C world in 2017, 2018. Um, and, and I think like, I don't know, for an e-commerce brand to raise $5 million doing a million dollars in revenue, you know, there's something to be said there in this environment, that would be super hard to do. But I mean, 2017, there was brands raising a lot more money than that. Um, and especially the past few years, there was, there was brands raising a crazy amount of money too. Yeah. And it's also, you know, you're doing the numbers here, four years from when they started playing with this, right? Like, like their, their idea could have graduated from high school you know, before they, they raised money and really started to get going. Yeah, I'm curious, what, what do you think that round dynamic was like, though? I mean, a million dollars in revenue, raising $5 million. Are those investors that are, are friends and family? Are those like VCs? I mean, what, what does that round look like? You know, let, let's dive into that a little bit, because I think to me, that seems like, you know, a pretty serious round for a million dollar e-commerce brand. Yeah, I, I do know that uh, they they had a UK firm that basically anchored their Series A. Um, they had taken friends and family, and and they had you know some other investors in Canada that had invested into them earlier. So it wasn't as if uh, they had raised zero money. 
uh, or put zero money into this. They had done something along the way. Their first true venture round was a UK investment firm investing in a Canadian company that sold predominantly in the US. And so it's just an interesting dynamic there. Yeah, I wonder, you know, what the relationship was with with that investor and, and how that came to be. But, you know, I think there's something to be said about the timing there of, of raising that capital at a, at a million dollars in e-commerce revenue. I think that in today's world would be very hard to do, especially for a first time founder. I mean, that's that's hard to pull off. Yeah. So then uh, then, then things really get fun. So between 2018 and 2020 was the period of kind of breaking out explosive growth, becoming a household name. Uh, in 2018, they saw a 400% growth rate. And that corresponded with, with their first retail store they opened in, in Toronto. Um, so interesting that they, you know, they, they rode the coattails of, um, of their D2C brand into their own retail shop as opposed to trying to sell into Sephora or Ulta or something else like that. Um, in 2019, they closed a $23 million Series B. And I think the most interesting part about this was that Nora closed the deal while she was six months pregnant with twins. And so there's a lot of really interesting stories and things there online about, uh, you know, how she was, um, you know, convincing VCs and and finding the right sort of investors who were going to be okay with the fact that she's about to have two very small kids, first time mom. Uh, She's going to raise $23 million running a company. And oh, by the way, uh, when you have kids, that definitely messes with your life and your sleep. And all sorts of stuff. And so I think it was kind of a testament to the investors that she was able to find. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I want to dive into the revenue numbers because I know these are estimated, but at the same time, you know, they're pulled from legitimate articles about the brand. I mean, we go from doing about a million dollars in 2017 to 400% growth in 2018. So call it $5 million, you know, probably over four in 2018. And then 2019, the revenue is estimated to be $43 million. That's insane growth. I mean, they literally, you know, like 8, 8x their business in 2019, which is like insane. I mean, even if they're doing just 20 million and the estimate is, you know, off by 20 mil, still going from five to 20 million in a year is just incredible. I think part of it probably has to do with the category of, of jewelry in terms of, you know, it is a very high margin category and we'll we'll dive into that. But I think a lot of it probably also has to do with their strategy and their their fundraising, right? I mean, I know I remember seeing, you know, their ads across social media and, and even some billboards and, you know, they had a ton of engagement. And so I think it's just, um, I mean, their growth is is incredible during this time period. Yeah, and, and if only that was the end of the story there. But you know, kind of digging that period, they were one of the first companies that really pioneered micro influencers. So these are people with follower counts of under a hundred. And so the thought there was that they worked with a lot of these folks and it gave the brand a very organic, down to earth sort of feel. And and yet at the same time, uh, they're not afraid to show that uh, X Y Z celebrity loves their content, and you know it was one of Oprah's favorite things, I think. And so they kind of had this interesting microcosm where uh, it was aspirational because these celebrities loved it, but because the influencers that they're working with were so small, it became very uh, approachable, and it was something there. So they did a really interesting piece there, just from a branding point of view. And I think from a a supply chain uh, perspective, they really figured out that you know repeat purchasing, giving people a reason to come back and repeat purchase 
was really important. And so they drop new products every week. Um, I've got some companies I work with, but the innovation cycle is like two years. Um, but this is a new type of product every week. They, they lean into having lots of limited editions. So they're not afraid of being out of stock. In fact, they have a wait list where if, uh, if a pair of uh, you know, necklaces or earrings or, or other jewelry uh, sells out, there's a wait list to know when it comes back in. And so you know, they may have 5,000 pieces that sell and a wait list of 20,000 people. And that's a really good indication of like, oh, we should make this again. And so they do that by being really, really lean on inventory and just embracing the stock out and just turning it so quickly that you get that positive cash flow. How do you think they turn, you know, and, and replenish their inventory so quickly, right? Because, you know, their suppliers are overseas. I mean, jewelry lead times are, are not the fastest. I mean, they're fast, but they're not the fastest. I mean, do you think they're maybe holding some inventory ready at their factory? Uh, do you think, you know, how do you think they manage that? Or do you think they just utilize that strategy of, hey, this is limited edition, you know, we've built this brand around selling out and then there's going to be a wait list and then we'll sell out again. Or is that this, just their strategy? I mean, I'm curious how you think the inner workings are behind that. Yeah, I'm not a merchandising expert or anything like that, but what I can see from, from my research and what I saw on the website is that it appears that they have kind of a base peak mentality. Um, and what I mean by that is, is you know, they sell earrings, they sell necklaces, they sell rings, and they have so many different types of SKUs, and they have some best sellers that are their most affordable, their cheapest, whatever, and they are always running those in stock. And so they can afford to have large quantities to hold inventory there because they may, they're probably just using the short-term limited edition uh, thing to drive people to the site. It's, it's an acquisition ta tactic to get them to the website. And then effectively, they're, you know, if they can buy it, great. You know, those are more expensive than, than normal. It's a probably higher margin. Uh, they're part of the in crowd if they do get it. But if they don't, they get to sign up for a wait list and say, oh, bummer. Here's, you know, five bucks off or 20 bucks off. Find something else that you like here. And so they've already done the, the, work, the hard work of getting that previous consumer or that prospective consumer to be interested in something that they're making, to fall in love with the design, to come to the website, to start browsing. And so then they, they're able to say, oh, you know, sorry, we only had 5,000. We'll add you the wait list. But come here and take a look at uh, these other things that are kind of similar uh, that, that we, think, we, we think you're going to love. And because they, they own their design and, and their, uh, their methodology there, they are able to, to kind of iterate on their design slightly uh, so that things all look coherent, coherent and cohesive. And it, it's not as if one style is radically different from another. One of the things that they try to do with their designs is attempt to say that, you know, you can have one piece and that makes the outfit or you could stack it with 10 pieces and that makes the outfit. It's all complementary. That's cool. I, I like that strategy. I mean, I think I would imagine their LTV of each customer is, is pretty large. And I think they have, I mean, must have a pretty high repeat purchase rate. I mean, I think that's like one of the keys to this business is they've been able to create brand loyalty, whether that be through, you know, their waitlist strategy or just selling and designing great products and having great customer service. But I think too, there's something to be said about intertwining that with like an omni-channel type of presence early on where they have their own retail stores, which is really pretty amazing if you think about it. I mean, very few e-commerce brands launch their own stores. You know, it's, it's, it's a really unique strategy that I think enable them to, to grow even more and have 
more customer loyalty. Yeah, I think a lot of brands try to launch stores and end up closing them, but they've, they've made it stick. Um, just, just sticking with the kind of the drops every week, uh, that sounds like impressive and it's, it's great from a marketing perspective. But you and I know from an operational perspective, that is a lot of work, right? You've got to get the designs, the manufacturing, the tooling, the shipping, everything has to work perfectly for that, that drop to happen and to be predictable. And uh, one of the things I dug into when I was looking at that is just how they're doing that. And they were probably one of the first or, or probably an earlier adopter than maybe they need to be of just having CAD files and 3D printing in order to have fast prototyping so that they could see what was interesting, what people were responding back to. And then to kind of say, all right, you know, we know that this sort of ring with a flare is, is very interesting. Let's come up with four or five different editions. Maybe we A-B test it with some ads, uh, but then we can ship the, the CAD files and ship the specs off to our factory and have something built within a matter of weeks. That's awesome. I mean, to bring all that in-house and imagine their ability to 3D print some of those designs, that would be super cool for their design and development team to be able to, you know, take this idea, turn it into a CAD file and then print it right there and just see how it feels in, in real life and see the spec and size. I mean, that's, that's awesome. I love that development process and it's hard. I mean, most companies cannot do that because you know, most companies are not necessarily jewelry brands that can, you know, 3D print their their products before they launch. But that's a unique idea in terms of being able to rapidly test ideas through the use of 3D printing that I don't think is used by most brands. Especially, you know, a few years ago, I think it might be more common today. But um, yeah, it was, it was some really smart decisions that they made there. You mentioned in 2019, the revenue is about $43 million. Uh, I would guess that off the 23 that they, they raised, the valuation was probably around 100 million. So let's kind of just keep that in the back of our mind. Maybe it was 80, 90, but let's just call it 100 million. Um, and in 2019, they, they were kind of already looking at an IPO and just saying it's in the near future, weren't committal, but there was something they were looking at. Um, with the pandemic, obviously that changed everything. And they were already a D2C business that was doing well. And uh, they had retail shops which they kind of had to, to put on ice for a little bit. Um, 2020 to 2023 was really about global expansion for them. And so they chose to take COVID and lean aggressively into D2C. Um, so they operate D2C businesses in North America, Oceania, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, um, pretty much every major market they've got covered with direct uh, D2C relationships that they've got. Uh, they also grew their retail presence to 18 locations. So they've got five in Canada, 12 in the US, and one in the UK. Um, and one of the interesting things is, is, you know, I really see them up leveling and, and kind of getting ready for the next phase. And uh, they hired someone uh, in 2023 named Andy Hart, who spent 20 some odd years at Tiffany and Company to run their supply chain. And so they're, they're literally bringing in uh, the right type of caliber and pedigree of people, at least on paper, uh, to, to really take them to the next level. And um, I don't know, there's just a lot of things that are going right there. Yeah, I mean, that's insane, especially during COVID to grow like that internationally. I mean, I would be just super curious to understand how they pulled off that expansion during COVID. And they kind of seem to lean into their, their retail presence, you know, with 18 locations, uh, you know, growing to that level during COVID. I mean, that is that is really impressive to do during COVID. And I think like you're saying, I mean, they brought in a seasoned executive that has direct experience in their industry, leading probably one of the most difficult parts of their business, which is their supply chain, especially at the pace that they're launching new products. I mean, that's a, 
uh, what looks like a great hire. I think it's just, I mean, did they, they must have opened up fulfillment centers, you know, in Europe, in Asia, and these other parts of the world. I mean, not, they're not shipping all these pieces of jewelry from their fulfillment center in America to those places. I mean, how do you, how do you think that looks on the back end? So really interesting. So um, I did a test shipment. Um, my wife was more than happy to comply. Um, but I assumed <laughs> that with most of their D2C volume being in the U.S., that there would be two or three fulfillment centers here. And, you know, it'd be, I'd get it in two days and that, that would be that. Um, I was actually surprised that my package came from Toronto. I, I'm in North Carolina. This came from, from, uh, from Toronto. It was two-day uh, international, uh, FedEx International. And uh, yeah, and, and so it, it's an interesting piece there because there's no reason why they couldn't be using a similar product and potentially having only one fulfillment center to fulfill globally. Um, they, you know, this is such that they've done some analysis or, or looked at it and said, you know, our inventory is so expensive. Uh, it is, it's worth uh, keeping tight controls. It's worth uh, making sure that we've got a secure facility and we're just going to ship globally from a single location in Toronto. Now, they may have something else in, in, you know, it would make sense given where they're manufacturing to have something in say Hong Kong uh, to maybe service that, that part of the world. Um, but at least for the U.S., uh, for my shipment, I was surprised that it came from Toronto, Canada. Yeah, that's super surprising. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if they're doing uh, some sort of like Section 321 loophole with these shipments because, you know, all their items when shipped directly to consumers are under $800. So maybe they're trying to offset their tariff costs. I'm not sure, you know, the tariff costs off the top of my head for jewelry but they're probably importing enough volume where that's a significant cost if they were to import that all at once into a U.S.-based fulfillment center. So maybe because they know most of their customers are U.S.-based, they're potentially utilizing you know, Section 321, which for those that aren't aware, it basically means if you ship a product into America that's valued at under $800, you don't have to pay uh, tariffs or duties on that product. So that could be a potential avenue that they're taking where it makes sense of, hey, we're going to warehouse for North America in Canada and utilize Section 321 for our customers in America. Because, I mean, I would assume if you look at the bottom line, you know, if they're importing, I mean, let's say their revenue in 2019 was 43 million. So let's say they're spending at least, I don't know, call it $5 million on, on, on their unit costs, right? So, I mean, they were—they're probably saving through Section Three Two One. You know, at least I don't know half a million, maybe even a million bucks if they yeah. do that, which is which is interesting to think about. Yeah, all depends on if you know Canadian taxes on jewelry is less than U.S. taxes and things like that. You know, one other reason for why maybe only the warehouse uh, in Canada would be just around tax nexus, and so. I don't think this is the case because they have retail presence here in the U.S. But in theory, if they were a Canadian company and all of their inventory and all of their employees were in uh, in Canada, uh, in theory, they wouldn't have to register or pay taxes or things like that because you'd just be importing individuals on that end. Um, so some interesting things there. One thing that would be interesting to kind of understand um, with with a strategy for them down the road would be fulfillment from their stores. Again, they have these 18 locations. Uh, today, they use them much more like showrooms um, as opposed to kind of like in the Lululemon vein, another Canadian company. 
um, where it's just, hey, come here, experience it, see it. You can walk out with something. Uh, but if you order it, we're going to ship it from a massive warehouse and it'll get there in two days. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, there's this trend towards micro fulfillment, right? And getting products to someone as fast as possible. But hey, if it got to you in two days from Canada, that's impressive in itself. And I bet you that parcel was super light. So they're probably not paying that much for it. But I mean, there's so many different strategies when it comes to fulfillment. You know, I feel like so many different theories, but at the end of the day, I'm sure their, you know, director or head of fulfillment is looking at the net cost. Yeah, for sure. So let's kind of uh, bring it up to current day. So 2023, uh, their revenue is estimated to be about 160 to 175 million. Uh, again, in 2019, it was 43 million. So uh, basically 4Xing the business, uh, you know, through COVID and through this expansion. Uh, they reported they've had 1.5 million customers. And, uh, you know, they're looking at 22 retail stores that are going to be opening up soon. And they've done about 3.5 million shipments. Um, and so there's there's a, a lot of just, they seem to be clicking on all cylinders. And they're starting to position themselves uh, as a more mature company. So one indication of that is uh, they're one of the few companies that I've seen, at least uh, venture back, that has been publishing a full sustainability report, which they started in 2023. Again, kind of goes back to the core ethos of, uh, wanting to to make sure that that is a, a, an important part of the brand, um, and then you know it looks like uh, just recently in January 2023 they took an undisclosed uh, amount of investment, so that may signal either a down round um, or a bridge loan from uh, from some ex existing investors, um, or it could have been you know a large secondary sale or, or things like that. But normally uh, that would just happen between the founders and, and whoever's acquiring it. So. Um, you know, all in all, not an enormous amount of money that they've raised. I think uh, you do the math, it's, it's you know, in the low 30s um, when it's all there uh, for revenue of, you know, 160, 175 million. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think these numbers are incredible. I, I don't know, my gut tells me that was probably some sort of secondary type of round or, or who knows, you know, about that, that round in January 2023. I mean, it seems like with this growth, I don't, know how they would i mean i guess they could have mismanaged their cash flow or debt or you know taken some sort of variable debt and, and needed to uh clean up their balance sheet in that regard that could have potentially happened but i mean this growth is is phenomenal i mean it's really impressive and jewelry is such a high margin category that i mean i, I couldn't imagine they're they're not making money unless they just staffed up too many people i mean do you think they overhired or do you think that they run a pretty lean team i mean what do you think on that end you know i think everybody overhired to some extent right like i think uh you're you're lying to yourself if, if you didn't uh during the the craziness that was going on the last couple of years um look you know i think that uh they're clearly upgrading the talent in their executive suite um you know we talked about andy hart coming in to run the supply chain they made other hires other acquisitions like that um, those are not cheap individuals, both from a salary and equity position. And so you're going to bring that person in, and then they're going to bring in other expertise to up-level around them. And so I would imagine that uh, they are maybe trying to change the shape of their organization. And you know, you're, you're going to see some turnover with folks that have been there for a while, um, just as they get ready for this next phase of uh, you know, acquisition, IPO, uh, those sorts of things. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I mean, I think it's uh it's their next step has to be either a big acquisition or IPO. 
I'm super curious to understand, you know, what that's going to look like. I, I, I would think they're at the scale where there's only a handful of companies that could acquire them. I mean, we'll see what it looks like because, you know, they hinted at an IPO in 2019, but obviously the market's changed so much during COVID and now they've changed so much again that who knows where they're at, but they definitely have impressive revenue. And, you know, to be able to serve an estimated one and a half million customers, I mean, that's phenomenal. And if you kind of just do the simple math, I mean, their AOV is like, you know, about what, 50, 60 bucks, it looks like on average. Yeah, I, I bought the cheapest thing on there and it was 58 bucks plus shipping. <laughs> okay, so if that was the cheapest, then it's probably even higher. I mean, it's probably closer yeah. to 80 or 100. They, they had stuff up there for a couple hundred bucks. So probably even more, which is interesting because if it says they have 1.5 million customers, but on the high end, their estimated revenue was 175 mil. Huh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So let's kind of talk a little bit about um, exit options. So, uh, you know, from from my experience in, in just working with startups and building uh, venture back companies and lifestyle businesses, there's basically three ingredients that a startup needs in order to, to exit. Um, the first one is they have to be a profitable, repeatable business. Um, that used to not be the case, but that is absolutely table stakes today. Uh, the second thing is what I call a level up capability. So this is something that an acquirer is going to buy that's going to make the acquirer better. So maybe your team is really good at selling an Amazon. Uh, maybe you have unique distribution or retail relationships, or you have IP or patents that are helpful. So some sort of level up capability. And then uh, the third is there has to be a very easy win, early win for the acquirer. Um, so for example, uh, if I'm a D2C brand and I'm in Target, but I'm not in Walmart and the acquirer has deep Walmart relationships, that's a really easy way for them to take your revenue from 100 million to 180 million and justify paying the multiple that you're looking for. So those are kind of the three things I just wanted to kind of walk through and, and stack up to see, uh, you know, at least from my perspective, where Majuri is. Base, I mean, do you think Majuri is profitable? Do you think they have this kind of level up capability? Like, what is their expertise? Is it D2C? Is it opening, opening retail stores? Is it, you know, shipping to customers around the world? Um, and is there like a clear, easy win for the acquirer? Probably depends on who the acquirer is, obviously. But I mean, do you think they're profitable? I think that they're probably very close, if not already there. In other words, I think if they decided tomorrow that they wanted to be profitable, they could do it. And they may be deciding that they're leaning into growth or they're doing other things there, but I think they control their own destiny. It's a good position to be in, right? What about their their level up capability? I mean, what do you think is kind of their main strength? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, there's two big things. Uh, first, they are their own designers. Um, they are dealing with some litigation right now around some potential copycats of if they copied someone else or someone else copied them. But they are their own designer. They're, you can only get Majuri stuff from Majuri. Um, and their retail stores could be repurposed uh, you know, for the right acquirer to include other products. And so there's, there's some interesting pieces there of, you know, again, having your own in-house design uh, and then you know, having a team that can operate 22 retail stores is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think they have a lot of strong capabilities and the fact that they brought in, you know, seasoned executives from incredible brands like Tiffany and Co. I mean, 
they must have really strong executives on their team. So I would say like, you know, okay, there's obviously some IP there, there's the team and, you know, they have a retail presence, which, which is pretty cool. And I, I guess I'm curious, their jewelry is not sold into other stores really right now at all. I mean, it's all their own channels. Is that right? That's right. You can only get it from them. Which is really unique. I mean, most brands in today's world that have hit this scale are selling through, you know, Nordstrom or Target or whatever big retailer fits their demographic. Yeah. So do you think they're eventually going to sell into these stores or just kind of continue to keep their retail presence? It's an interesting thought. I mean, I, I think it depends on what the acquirer is and, and what they're doing. I think there's lots of optionality. So again, I think that they're close to profitability. Uh, they've got like a 40% repeat customer rate. Uh, they've got some level up capabilities that would enrich the acquirer. And then the third thing I mentioned was this early win. And so I, I kind of had fun with these ones. And I, I kind of, I thought of three potential scenarios for an early win, depending on the acquirer. So the first one was a expansion of the Majuri line into a large number of retail locations. So kind of exactly what you're talking about. Uh, if Sephora or Nordstrom's or even Walmart or Kohl's decided to buy Majuri, they could then almost you know overnight take that line, those designs, and put them into their existing retail channels and probably do very, very well. And so I think that like that is something that they're intentionally not getting into Sephora so that an acquirer could look at this and say, oh yeah, you know, there is, there's a lot of meat on the bone here. We could just do that and, and make our money. Um, the second interesting thought was, uh, you know, they could help an acquirer establish a foothold into an, another adjacent category. So imagine if Ulta Beauty purchased them, then they move, you know, Ulta Beauty moves from beauty only to beauty plus fashion, which is a very adjacent, probably a lot of overlap from a customer base. Um, and some synergies that way. Um, or, you know, if, if Viore or Lululemon decided to purchase them, uh, they're moving from apparel only uh, to fashion as well. And so there's, there's some interesting pieces that kind of come into that. Um, and then the kind of the third scenario was someone who wanted to acquire a retail presence in North America. So if there's a European or an Asian beauty or jewelry retailer without a presence in North America, they may feel this is really interesting to buy you know, 22 locations that are ready to go, they could, you know, potentially move some of their other products in there or just learn how to operate in North America. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And if I was their founders, I would probably rather sell than try to go public. I mean, you look at the comps for some of these public D2C brands, whether it be, you know, Allbirds or Solo Stove and, and that whole roll-up strategy. I mean, the comps are not good for publicly traded D2C brands. So my guess is their executives would lean towards a private sale. Yeah, it definitely could. I mean, in my opinion, doing an IPO makes sense if you have a really defensible moat, right? A lot of the things that we talked about, um, you know, the design could be a defensible moat. Um, so I don't know. It, it's a tough one. Obviously, if the founders, you know, and the investors are looking for liquidity and they want to keep doing what they're doing, then yeah, an IPO makes a lot of sense. But no matter what, whether it's a private sale or a, an IPO, the cap table is going to change and the demands in the business are inherently going to change. And so there may be some reluctance to do either of those because they're really enjoying the ride right now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. 
Let's dive into the to the back end more. Um, so like I said, I did a test shipment. I ordered a $58 pair of earrings on Saturday. And uh, the, the product wasn't promised to ship until Tuesday. And that was with the $8 expedition shipping fee. Um, I was surprised when the shipment was actually fulfilled on, su- on Sunday, so the following day. And uh, it was tendered to FedEx with International Two Day. Um, so that was, it was really interesting to me because that told me that they had a fulfillment center that was fulfilling orders on the weekends, which you typically don't see. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of goes to this idea that maybe they've got a single fulfillment center that's, that's servicing a lot of brands internationally. Um, the, the, you know, the, the product shipped from Toronto. Um, when, it, when it got here, I did a reverse search uh, on, on where their fulfillment center is. And it, it looks like they have purchased their own warehouse. It looks like they're operating this uh, themselves, or they have someone who's like dedicated space for it. Uh, there are some other jewelry companies that are associated with the same address. And so um, it, it may be one of the situations where you have someone who's got a dedicated portion of a warehouse and they're just operating it for you. Um, but the, the, so yeah, that was very interesting to me. Um, and then the, the unboxing itself was kind of interesting. It reminded me of one of those Russian nesting dolls because it was like the earring and the cloth in a bag, right? So that's first level. And then that is in a box, which is in another bag, which is in the shipper. And uh, it was, you know, obviously the supply chain guy in me is like, oh, you know, put it in a brown paper bag and send it to me in, a, in an envelope and there we go. Um, but I get perception of quality. You want to make it look better. And so, you know, I, I can see why they did it. And it, it looks nice. It'll be, it'll be thrilled when I, when I give it to my wife. Um, but then the, the other interesting thing from the film up point of view that they did is they actually had a custom card that they printed the order number on there. And so it was. It was a small kind of index card that was printed out. And they said, here's your order number if you need to do a return or exchange, uh, even if you were gifting it or, or doing whatever, uh, which was, I hadn't quite seen that before because usually you either get the big packing list, which is ugly, um, or you, you just don't have the order number. And so it's kind of difficult. You're reaching out to your customer service people and trying to work out what's there and just hoping that you have it in your, uh, the order number in your inbox to, to do that exchange. Um, but I, I like the uh, the card touch they included. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting, though, from a packaging standpoint, because they have a sustainability report, but then they have such a a unsustainable packaging, it, it seems like. I mean, to have that many layers of, you know, cardboard and boxes and all that crap, it's like, you know, I understand you want to create this luxury experience that's memorable, but at the same time, you're publishing a sustainability report and your packaging is the opposite of that, in my opinion. You know, like I, I think uh, I'm sure they're very responsibly sourced bags and corrugate and things like that. You know, like things have to look nice. You know, if you're going for something that potentially someone spent a couple hundred bucks on, you can afford to have recycled paper or something just to make it feel good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. Good perspective. What about on the factory side? Where, where do we think these these products are coming from? How do we go about finding that? Sure. So uh, there was a lot of really interesting things that were going on. Um, obviously, they they're partnering with uh, with factories that are part of the Responsible Jewelry Council. They're looking to do third party validation. They've got responsible mining assurances. Uh, they're doing some interesting interesting things with lab grown diamonds. Uh, but the main factory, according to the import. Um, uh, records is a company out of shanghai i'm not even gonna try to produce i'll let you do that one yeah it's kind of a weird 
spelling even for chinese it's x-i-a-o-u usually there'd be like a y in there or something like xiao yu or xiao yeah I, I, I don't know it's interesting spelling even from a chinese perspective i mean to me maybe this is you know some sort of importing or, or exporting company from china as well because I, I mean, I don't think their factory is directly in Shanghai, obviously, maybe, you know, maybe somewhere outside or uh, around there, but definitely not in the city. Um, so I think yeah. it's probably, you know, a, a bit of a, a holding company, if you will, that's over there. Yeah, I'm going to Google it right now because I'm, 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 I'm intrigued. Yeah, it looks like they, no, they, they actually produce stuff. So that, that is the actual address. So. Um, they own a lot of different things, a lot of it from machining, steel, um, but then they're also doing fine metals here too. Well, there we have it. Hey, we'll put the website in the show notes if you want to see uh, where some of their jewelry comes from. Yeah. It, it, although, it, you know, they're not leading with that. So may, you still may be onto something as far as the, uh, the actual factory because most of what's on the website is uh, galvanized steel, zinc alloys, things like that. So. This is probably uh, a, a bulk manufacturer providing a lot of the raw materials, and maybe there's some finishing happening in Canada or somewhere else in China. Yeah, that, that would make sense too. That would definitely make sense. Well, I think this was a really unique deep dive on how they started their supply chain, what their growth looks like. I mean, it's an incredible story. I'm, I'm pretty impressed, you know, especially when it comes to their marketing side. Um, I think the fulfillment side is interesting that a U.S. order shipped from Canada. I mean, my guess is either they just have, you know, one central fulfillment center or they're utilizing Section 321 or there's got to be some reason for that. I think that's a really interesting perspective that we uncovered um, because most brands that are selling in America, they have U.S.-based fulfillment. Um, that's that's really unique. I mean, even if you're using Section 321 in Amer or from, from Mexico, you could set it up where you're shipping from like a U.S. address, which is also kind of interesting. Like you're not going to ship from oh, a Mexican address when you're using Section 321 from Mexico. So that kind of makes me think that they aren't even use, using Section 321. I don't know. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to flip the script, Nathan. So you have helped so many companies source and get started and things like that. You know, I'm sold. Majority is a great business. We should get into jewelry. If if we were to start this, how would we do it? What where would you start? Yeah, I mean, I think number one, I love their development process of creating CADs and three D printing because I think what you see on screen versus what you get is always so different, and so the ability to do that with jewelry is so present that that's a no brainer. So number one, I'd probably just go on Upwork, hire a CAD designer for a few hundred bucks, and start making iterations of jewelry designs that I like. Then I would go to like a local 3D printing shop or I know there's like 3D printing shops online that you could just like send your designs to and they'll print it and ship it to you. And I would start that way. Like, do I actually like the feel of this jewelry in person? Um, you know, at Sourcefy, we've helped a ton of jewelry brands optimize their supply chain and cut unit costs. I mean, I know one brand in particular we've saved like over 30% for, which was uh, pretty awesome for them. But at the end of the day, jewelry is a high margin category. I mean, if you're selling a $100 ring, you're probably not spending more than like, you know, 10% of that to produce it, if that. I mean, most jewelry margins are like 90 plus percent gross, which is awesome. Um, sometimes even higher, which is, which is amazing. So I think there's a lot of 
margin there. Um, you know, I think for the most part, most jewelry brands are spending a lot on marketing and, and to scale their brand and build that community. But from a supply chain perspective, I think jewelry is great because number one, you can test and actually like test the physical product before, you know, you even find a supplier. Number two, it's pretty easy to find suppliers in jewelry. You know, Sourcefy has a huge network, um, which is awesome. But number three, they're pretty quick and fast to sample when, once you find a supplier. Uh, and number four, production timelines aren't too long. Number five, in general, the items are very small, so they're easy to ship. Though, you know, I guess they could be a little bit heavier, but not that heavy. I mean, overall, jewelry for e-commerce is an amazing category because it's high margin, lightweight, and pretty agile to manufacture. Oh, that, that's super helpful. Um, yeah, as you're going through those lists of things, I'm like, yep, lightweight, tick. Yep, high value, tick. Like, it, it's just, uh, it's amazing that there's e-commerce businesses that aren't jewelry, right? Like, there's just so much good stuff there. The only thing that I think is missing for jewelry as a category that's probably really hard to do with jewelry is repeat purchase rate, right? There's no like subscription, like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know how you would put someone on like a jewelry subscription. Maybe you could do like a surprise box or something like that. But like, I mean, if jewelry for some reason, like if you create a jewelry brand that could have subscription, it'd be like home, home run. I mean, you'd have to do this. But I mean, nowadays with e-commerce, I think subscription is, is such a key, especially to manage cash flow that I think that's the only thing this category is missing. Yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, we, we talk with a lot of influencers and people that have ideas for business that want to start. Uh, how often do you see influencers come and say, hey, let's do a jewelry brand? Is this one of the categories uh, that they pick uh, up and say, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I would say pretty often in, gen in general because it's low cost to get started. And it's pretty easy to ship and they can really, you know, effectively bring their designs to life. So I would say pretty often, you know, um, I, I mean, it, there's so many simple ways to go about jewelry, whether it be just engraving something um, instead of doing like custom designs. You know, there's so many different ways to go about it. And there's like standard ring sizes, too. You know, you don't have to go out and reinvent the wheel with jewelry, which is pretty awesome. That's cool. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what the the jewelry manufacturing ecosystem looks like is it something where there's lots of little players a few big ones that clustered in certain geographies what's that look like yeah i mean most of the jewelry manufacturers that i know are in china i know there are some other ones that are more unique like in india or vietnam but i think most you know scale jewelry production is done in china it's a similar dynamic i think with most categories where you know you might have a manager that was at a huge factory want to go start their own factory and so they start and typically they start smaller and that's how you have you know these manufacturing bases that grow around one city and it's such a interesting and phenomenal aspect i think of manufacturing where for whatever reason a lot of factories that produce the same type of product are in the same city and that's typically because you know those managers went out and started their own facility but also from the raw material standpoint of hey you know, this is where the raw materials are. This is where we're going to produce these products. Um, and so I think that's, you know, a really unique perspective when it comes to jewelry. Um, but, the, you know, raw material jewelry could come from all over the place. I mean, you know, it's not like a very rare material that they're using in most jewelry. But I think people would underestimate, like, the capabilities of factories to undercut their quality um and so quality control i think is super important in jewelry because you know when you get a piece of of uh, a necklace or a ring or whatever it may be when you get a new piece of jewelry like 
just by touching it and seeing it, oftentimes you won't know like, okay, is this 100%, you know, gold or is it coated gold or is it like, you know, sterling silver, like what material is it? And a lot of times you might have factories like kind of uh, mismatch or miscategorize the material that they're using to save on cost. I mean, you know, at Source 5, we've caught past factories that our clients were using where, you know, they said, hey, this is 100%, you know, stainless steel or whatever it may be. When you actually do a lab test on it, it's not, right? And so I think it is really important to to check your quality when it comes to jewelry because there's a lot of shortcuts that factories could take with, you know, raw materials that would be overlooked just by, you know, your feel and by your eyes. But if you actually do a lab test on that piece, you're going to be like, wow, you know, this is 60% nickel and, you know, the 40% what it was supposed to be. So you have to watch out. Yeah, it's like the top of a milk jug, the little circle part dipped in metal and say, here's your ring. Um, mm -hmm. That's what I'm imagining. In, in my research, I came across this this difference between like costume jewelry and fine jewelry. Are you aware of like what's the difference between those two? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, like fine jewelry is is a certain category that's very high end, like very refined uh, manufacturing process. You know, price points are higher. Um, that that's from my understanding. I think you know, as these e-commerce brands have have grown, some of the differences have become a bit blurred. But like, you know, fine jewelry, you're typically talking about like, you know, wedding rings or diamonds or stuff of that nature. Um, and refined could be like a refined type of material that, you know, is not uh, a straight mineral or diamond that is, you know, from the ground. That's helpful. I think the hardest part is, 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 is you know, marketing, to be honest. I think if you come to Sourceify and say, hey, I want to start a jewelry brand, and I have 5 million Instagram followers, I'd say, hey, this can be easily a multi-million dollar brand. Let's start and let's get the ball rolling. Or if you're a jewelry brand right now and you've had supply chain issues, like Sourcefy has such a strong jewelry base that we know this category inside and out. We probably already know the factories that you're working with or thinking about working with that I know we can have a lot of success with the brands that we work with in this category because we've worked with some of the biggest brands in the jewelry category. So yeah, I uh, don't wear too much jewelry, but I do admire the category and know a lot about it. Sounds good. Well, this was a lot of fun. I uh, I enjoyed nerding out and always talking operations with you. Uh, I think my wife enjoyed uh, being a guinea pig as well. So I think she's looking for us to do more jewelry episodes or maybe, I don't know, something else fancy. Um, this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, next one, we're going to do diamonds, right? Yeah, I think diamonds and Teslas and Versace and uh, whatever. We'll see. <laughs> there we go. We're just going to go higher end, higher end, higher end. So we get uh, our significant others more and more gifts. Aaron, this was awesome. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. This episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify and Isba. If you have supply chain issues, reach out to us. If you have questions, reach out to Aaron or I on LinkedIn. And please like and subscribe to e-commerce on tap. It helps a lot. Leave a review. If you learned anything, take a screenshot and tag us on Twitter and let us know what you learned. We're always here to provide feedback and look forward to catching you next time on e-commerce on tap.